From the studios in the swamps of Jersey, this is Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling for May 5th, Cinco de Mayo, and right at 6 p.m. Eastern. We've got this timed out, right, uh, uh, Jordan? Right at 6 p.m. Eastern time to talk both his beloved Mets and the Knicks. Our senior NBA insider, Jordan Brickman, back to the show. Hello, sir. Hey, Jeremy. Thank you for having me on. I know everyone's very excited for Scott Van Pelt, but we're hoping to break some viewership records today. Hey, Nick, I told you to listen. I told you. I told you we were going to set some records. All right? All right, brother? I told you. Um, so anyway, uh, let's start with uh, first place by four and a half games, New York Mets. Um, wow. You know, so I'm sitting at Guaranteed Rate Field last, what was that, Friday? Yeah, last Friday night, a week ago tonight, home of the White Sox. And my friend who's a Met fan goes, they have a combined no-hitter going through seven. And we're like, what? And watching those last two innings with them and then alerting my dad to it, a lifelong Met fan since they came into existence, Dude, the wins you've gotten, the wacky wins, the 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 somehow you won that game against the Cardinals win. I mean, there have been some of these. Is this one of those seasons? It feels it feels special. We've had special Aprils before, so you know I want to try to pump the brakes. Um, I'm getting too excited. I'm trying to stay grounded on what's happening. Um, you know, they had that 2018 year where they were basically just as good in April and then they were under 500 at the end of the season. It's all about health, right? It, it can, obviously, we're doing this out the ground. If they can stay healthy, which they have been so far outside of the ground for the most part, um, then it feels like a very special team. Uh, you know, look, they have the most infield hits in baseball right now. They have, they're getting hit, getting hit by so many pitches. They're getting these free base runners from that. Um, the, the dead ball error right now seems to be coming back, with the, especially with the cold, the cold weather in April. It's seasonably cold weather um, in April. Home balls are not flying as far, less home runs. That really helps a, a team with the pitching staff and the types of hitters we have who might not be trying to necessarily hit over the fence every time. We look like a Nimmo and a McNeil and a Marte and even like a, a Dom who's been starting to heat up recently who are not necessarily trying to smack it over the fence every time. And even Pete's going opposite more often. You know, it, it's it's been... It's fit. The, the current climate of baseball has fit the current Mets roster. Hopefully it maintains throughout the season. Hopefully when the weather gets a little bit warmer, those balls don't start you know, going over the fence that our pitchers are, are, are trying to keep in the yard. But right now it feels very special with, with what's been happening and just hope that they can maintain it. Have you Did you see the article on ESPN.com yesterday about the ball not flying and they tracked two uh, 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 stadiums that are domes? I, I did not. Okay. For the folks out there, um, baseball wanted to reduce the amount of home runs um, hit this year by changing the way the ball was made. They thought that it was they 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 thought that it would cut three feet off it. Uh, it's a way more complicated article above my pay grade to um, to try to explain scientifically. I, I, will, I will send it to you, obviously. I, I encourage everybody to head on to ESPN.com and read it. Really interesting piece. Basically, this ball is not flying. And take the weather out. Take weird team conditions out. Take the 
pandemic shortened year of 2020 out, this ball is just not flying. And it has confused pitchers, hitters, uh, uh, scouts, people from ball clubs. People have been looking at, at um, these exit velocities and these launch angles and balls that were hit at the optimum launch and velocity last year in these same parks are not going out at a pretty uh, large rate, relatively speaking. It's a really interesting article, and it speaks to what you're saying, which is Buckshaw Walter, old-style baseball coach, bringing back bunting and moving people along and the art of the sack fly and smart base running skills and everything you did a couple weeks ago with checking a guy and knowing that the ball's live, you know, during the tossover and all that. Like, that fits this ball perfectly. Yeah, absolutely. I, I did see a, a tweet about um, launch angle and how basically year by year, lots of different launch angles being home runs, and then there was 2022 and how much lower it was basically across the board, no matter what the launch angle was for the ball you're hitting. So um, it's definitely, it's very obviously a thing. It's very obviously impacting the sport at the moment. Um, and, and yeah, it just it seems to be perfectly aligned with what the Mets do well, um, and, and hopefully it maintains that that way. I don't understand why baseball does this with changing the balls. They seem to be wanting to shoot themselves in the foot every single year. There's something that makes you scratch your head with Major League Baseball. I really hope there's a change uh, at the top with Manfred. It's got to be happening soon. There's been so many disasters from a PR standpoint with them. Um, but right now, for the Mets, I'll, I'll happily take pick what I'm seeing with the products they're putting out there, and they look confident. They look like they're they're not out of it for for games, and they look like they can they can win every night with that pitching staff and the offense putting together some runs. No one's even really having a great season offensively, with the exception of McNeil, and they're still they're still putting up top top offensive numbers in the league, which is great. Jordan Brickman with us here on Teeing It Up. You were in the ballpark the other day and saw. One of the fastest games in recent memory, an absolute clinic by Carlos Carrasco that took two hours and 18 minutes. Now, some people may have looked at that, saw that it was the second game of a doubleheader, and thought maybe we were still under the seven-inning rule. We are not. That was a nine-inning baseball game that was 218. Did you have enough time to enjoy yourself? Well, fortunately, I was there for the other game, uh, so I was there for, for quite a bit. Not that I didn't make it for the whole first game, but I was there for uh, a good portion of it. Uh, so I am totally two hours and twelve minutes is pretty fast. Uh, that's faster than even a basketball game. But I am totally down for speeding the game up as long as it doesn't impact the quality of play on the field. I don't know if you've been following what's been happening in the minor leagues yeah. with the pitch clock. Yeah. The that it, it's very obvious to me that the pitch clock is too quick right now for, yes. for the minor leagues. Those so numbers, getting, yeah. If, if you're having guys getting called out, multiple sounds like multiple times a game, like that is not the right number. That's why they're doing it in the minor leagues to adjust. The number needs to be like how what the NBA free throw number is. The NBA free throw number is ten seconds to shoot a free throw. It is it is just long enough where they never call it. Essentially, that's yep. the number that they need to find for baseball, where it's like I need to move faster. I can't be taken forever here, but um, I, I, it should almost never come into play where it gets called. Giannis got called a couple times last year, I think, in the playoffs, but. Giannis was taking way too long to shoot free throws. Like, why do you need Dick that long to shoot a free throw? And um, to be honest, I didn't even know that rule existed until it happened last year to Giannis. <laughs> and that's kind of it's like it's kind of like a 
uh, a seen but not heard type of thing. Like yeah. The rule, the rule exists, but it needs to be the exact length where it basically never matters. Um, so they're trying out the minor leagues. I saw a thread for a minor league pitcher. He, he broke it down, how it affects yeah. He said it needs maybe three more seconds added to it, and it'll be fine. Um, that's, that's, I'm totally, I'm actually down with the pitch clock. It just has to be the perfect time. I don't know what the time is, but it sounds like, you know, maybe not too far off. But the, the, if calling a batter out uh, on strikes, you know, because they the guy stepped out for half a second, you know, that's that's tough. That's a tough look. But they got to adjust. That, that's just what they have to go through. Um, games taking three hours and 15 minutes, three and a half hours, I mean, it can, it can really labor on sometimes. I love baseball, but. You know, it's one of those sports where I'm happy when it goes faster. And I love City Field. Like, I mean, you know, I love that place more than my home ballpark. Um, it's 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 such a nicer ballpark. It's easier to get to. You know, you know, say everything about it. Um, but uh, that place can get cold <laughs> this time of year. It can get a wee bit chilly at night, and that's not a place you want to be. Uh, at 9.30, 10, you know, 10, 10.30 in a game that's 7-2 to two and dragging through the eighth inning. Um, just not where baseball should be. And some of that stuff needs to be sped up, for sure. Yeah, it, it gets very cold this time of year. I had my winter jacket and my, my winter gloves and a scarf with me. Uh, it was 50 degrees out, but when you're in the four or 500 level section, it gets really windy and pretty good. It's like 10 degrees colder up there and windier. And it would be on the ground, of course. So, uh, I definitely agree with you there. Exactly. Um, where am I? Okay, Trevor May. Um, which is your first major person to the IL since uh, uh, Degrom? When it comes to pitching, are you concerned at all? The bullpen is my biggest concern for the team, no question. Um, even with May, who obviously hasn't been good this year and was just okay last year, um, I, I still. Lugo has not been the same shutdown Lugo that he's been historically. Drew Smith has been incredible. I hope that that can maintain. Uh, he's been literally one of the best relievers in baseball. Edwin has also been one of the best relievers in baseball. His stuff is grading out as, as maybe top two or three stuff so far this season in baseball, which is awesome to see. He was electric in that no-hitter. Um, but the bullpen is absolutely a concern. They don't have a shutdown last year right now. Jolie Rodriguez has been inconsistent. David Peterson's been in and out of the, rota- out of the rotation. And uh, the minors, maybe they can turn him into a bullpen guy if the rotation can stay healthy and, and maintain throughout the year. Once the Grom is back and they have six arms uh, that are quality for the for the rotation. But definitely concerns um, in the bullpen right now. So, you know, Trevor May hopefully can rest up. I still think he has some potential. Definitely prone to the, to the long ball and some, some bad innings. But... Um, he has had a history of success. Adovino has had a history of success. You know, they, but, but Buck Showalter used him for three, the third straight day the other night, and he got shelled. That's yeah. when guys, that, that shows the, 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 the weakness of the depth of the bullpen. Now, obviously, they had a doubleheader this week. You know, it's, it's, it's a, a lot of work, big workload. They've had a day off in, in a little bit. It's a big workload on those guys. It happens, you know. That's baseball. But I would like to see a lefty acquired and maybe another righty arm. Um, for that pen, because I do think it's a little shallow right now, and these these bullpen guys, it's fluky, right? Like some guys can have a good first half and a bad second half. They get used a lot. It's it's they're they're it's it's not necessarily consistent from from month to month um, in a season. So you got to have just stock up on those guys, get as many of them as you can, and hope that come the end of the season you look up and 
good half of them are healthy and it feels good at that time. You, yeah, that's really all you can do. And the other thing that I think is interesting is uh, look at this weekend's weather forecast. Um, it's not pleasant. <laughs> so there's a whole bunch of teams that are about to whole, you know, run into a whole bunch of weather issues uh, big time here um, in this next stretch because of this storm that will impact everything from the Wells Fargo Championship and the PGA Tour all the way through um, to baseball and the path to get to playoff games and other sports, um, which will obviously uh, see you guys... Yeah, I mean, like, your game against Philly tomorrow, I don't think that's happening, and God knows when you're playing, you know, anytime again after that. So, it's going to be interesting yeah. as we go forward on, on that front. Uh, we're going to get back to baseball in a bit. I, I want to just put a, a final stamp on the Knicks here for a second. You and I clamored for the kids. We got the kids at the end, and you saw what IQ did um, when he was able to let loose. Same with uh, Jericho Sims showed sh- showed sparks. Um, Obi showed a level of his game that I don't think many people realized was there and existed. Um, I don't know who's going to be on this Knicks team next year besides R.J. Barrett, um, but what I do know is that if we're trying to trade for a big guy, they actually did let um, some teams do some scouting, which was nice to see. Yeah, uh, it's going to be an interesting offseason. Obviously, you can leave the season with a little bit of a, a happy ending, if you will, with like the guys you just mentioned playing well. Um, obviously, there's always the, the narrative of, well, why did they do that earlier? You know, season could have been different type of thing. Especially when you look at a team like, like I look at the Hornets in the, in the playing game, and I'm just like, we're better than them. Like, yeah. as a team, we're better than them. Yeah. Um, so it's frustrating to, to see that. They obviously have Lamelo, who's, a, I think, a future superstar in the league, and um, totally destroyed us in, in the last game we played, played against them. But, um, you know, the, it'll be an interesting offseason. Like, how do they handle, I think the big question, the, the biggest question for me is how do they handle Julius Randle and Obi Toppin? It, uh, to me, it's very clear that Obi needs to play significantly more minutes next season. Um, how do they do that? Tibbs has been uh, not really willing to play him and Randle together, something that I've asked for on this podcast in the past. Um, it hurts them defensively when they do that. There's not really a rim protector there. Obi is still not a plus defender. Randall's defense can go up and down. If you have RJ in the wing, he's been a little up and down defensively. IQ, not really a defender. And who's the other guy? Is it, is it Fournier? He's not a defender. Is it Grimes? He can defend. Burks is an average defender. Like That's not a good defensive team. So are you just going to outscore everybody? It's not enough offensive talent to outscore the best team in the league. So they'll need to figure out what to do there. I think that's the biggest question of the offseason is what happens there. The other question is what happens at point guard? Is IQ the point guard? Um, do they just give him the reins and then D. Rose is back next year? Obviously we can't rely on him to play a full season, but hopefully they can manage him a little better and he's the backup, comes off the bench and um, that's what they do. Um, or do they trade for Malcolm Brogdon, which is a rumor that I think has a decent amount of legs. He's a, I think he fits the team very well um, because he's a guy that can play with or without the ball. Um, he's got a contract that is big, but not crazy, uh, in my opinion, for, for what he brings to the game. Uh, he can shoot, he can pass. He's a, he's a pretty big point guard, so that can allow you to play IQ next to him if you wanted to from a size standpoint, if IQ's going to play the two. Um, 
I really like a fit like that for the team. There's Jalen Brunson out there. I don't see him leaving Dallas. Um, or maybe they get creative and, and can, can find someone else. Or do they draft one? They're going to have close to a top 10 pick, maybe a top 10 pick if they get a little lucky. Do they use that to draft the point guard? Or is it Donovan Mitchell time? And that Jazz team is not going to be the same Jazz team next year. No question they have to make some changes. It's very, it's kind of embarrassing what happened to them. They lost two out of three games to the Luka Doncic list Mavs. And then when Luka came back, the series was basically over. They're nowhere near championship caliber. So what do they do with that roster? Um, you know, does Gobert get traded and they build around Donovan? Do they trade Donovan and just keep Gobert because he's got a bigger contract, a little bit harder to move and a little bit older? Um, so that's a, bit, that's a big question. And then what does that mean for Mitch? Um, who's playing center for us? Next, next year is it, he's an unrestricted free agent I don't think the Knicks are going to want to get into a bidding war for Mitch but sign and trade possibility is very out there can we get value back for him either a replacement center or um, someone to play point guard and then we use the money uh, or the assets to, to play Nerlens or Jericho or what do they do there so that's those are the three big questions for me at center I'm interested I would love to give DeAndre Ayton a max contract I think he's probably going to resign with the Suns but that dude is a stud particularly come playoff time, he is a mismatch for a lot of teams. Um, so if if the Suns get a little cheap, which they've been with DeAndre Ayton so far, I would absolutely give him a max contract and see see if he bites and, and if the Suns balk at him, although I don't think that's what that will happen. I think he will resign. Um, I'm also interested in Mo Bamba. You know, Mitch kind of dominated Mo Bamba this year, but when you see the Knicks offense with Obi. Uh, at the five, which they did at the end of the season, and how spread out it was, it just gave so much room for IQ and RJ and OB and these guys that can create to create. Uh, having five guys on the perimeter just gives them a lot of space. Having a guy like Mitch or even a guy like Randall when he's not shooting well just creates a lot of clutter in the paint. So we can bring in a guy like B- B- uh, Bamba who can shoot the three but also can protect the rim and probably won't be crazy expensive relative to those skill set, that would be something that I'd be interested in, in bringing on board um, to, to the Knicks. So those are some names, thoughts I have about how they can take the offseason. And that concludes the podcast. No. Um, <laughs> uh, Jordan Brickman with us here on Teeing It Up. No, I, I, I'm, I hear you on a lot of that. Um, I've said for a long time that I think Aiton is the unsung hero of, of, of that Suns team. Um, and what he's able to do to free up CP3 to, to free up uh, uh, Devin. And, um, you know, I, I was looking up Malcolm Brogdon's numbers just now. I mean, 15, uh, uh, sorry, 19, uh, uh, 6, and 5. I would take that in uh, 33 yeah. and a half minutes um, this year. I'll, I'll happily take that. Thank you very much. Um, Absolutely. So, Let's now look at the teams that qualified for the playoffs and are still participating, um, which is not you, Nets fans. Um, um, that's the meanest I've been on this podcast in a long time. Are you going to be mean to anybody being mean to Nets fans? Uh, yes. Well, uh, look, they thought that they had gold, and then they realized that they had James Harden, who complains, and then they flipped him for a guy that was just not ready to play. And... Um, that trade did not work. It did get them Seth Curry, which is a nice piece, but I'm not I'm I'm not sure what's gonna come of Ben Simmons going forward, even if his health uh, physically gets back to hundred percent. And I hope if he needs mental help 
that he gets the help that he needs. I'm not trying to put him down, but I just don't know what kind of an asset you're getting back now, you know, all these months later. Um, he so, just had back surgery, too. Yeah, which, which doesn't help matters at all. Right. Um, so the Warriors, who through all their injuries, had found this piece in Gary Payton II to come on and, and be this kind of sneaky guy for them, and then they lose him for a month, where now his only chance of returning becomes the NBA Finals. Dylan Brooks gets the one-game suspension, which I think he uh, fully deserved. That, that foul is not right for this game, in my opinion. But that is a big loss for a Warriors team that got banged up before that with Clay in this series and then got banged up uh, with uh, uh, Draymond as well um, on uh, whatever night that was, uh, Tuesday. Um, th th this is a beaten and battered Warrior team right now uh, that's got to face a stingy Memphis team that was able to use... 40-plus from Ja, once again, to, to make progress. My concern with Ja continues to be that if he goes cold and Bain goes cold, then, then who's going to be that next guy to step up? But right now, I think the bigger question is, can the Warriors figure out how their defense changes with uh, Peyton out for this long? Yeah, I, I think I think he makes some, some good points there. You know, it, I'm rooting for the Warriors in that series, um, and I am not concerned. Uh, I, I, the Grizzlies are, are very good. They're obviously young, and this is a huge, this be a huge growing experience for them. And um, they got a lot of young talent. They got some depth. They got some, some good players in the wing. I think Jaron Jackson is a really interesting matchup, especially against the Warriors, because he can guard, he can play out there when the Warriors go really small and still protect the rim. And there's not a lot of big men in the league that can do that. Um, but, and Gary Payne's a loss, right? He's a good defender. They, they, he's a guy that can do his best to, to slow down um, Morant, John Morant. It's a loss for, for him to be out. With that said, the, the Warriors beat the Grizzlies without Draymond Green in game one on the road. Once they go, and, and, and if you've looked at John Morant's splits in the postseason so far on home versus away, um, he has been significantly worse on the road. I think the Warriors will, will, will not I'll say fairly easily, but will take care of business at home in this series. And I think they take another game on the road in the series as well. So hmm. um, I, I'm not. There, it, it, it seems like in Memphis it's 50 50. When the Warriors are home, it's probably like 70 30 for them. So um, I, I feel fairly confident they're gonna they're gonna. Take you know take care of business, especially when you look at you know in the first round Memphis versus Minnesota. Patrick Beverly was cooking John Moran. Patrick Beverly, he John Moran couldn't stay in front of him. So what's going to happen when Steph when he's guarding Steph? Uh, now they're trying to hide job. They're trying to put him on you know whatever the defensive player is that's out there, not Steph. But I trust the Warriors to figure out a way to take advantage of that and. And exploit his defense. Other guys on the team can play some deep. Bain can play deep. Brooks can play deep. Jackson can play deep. Brandon Clark is like an incredible role player. I really love his game and fit for them. Um, 
But I just think when the lights are bright, the lights are brightest, and it's 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 gut check time on the road. I don't think Memphis is going to be able to get it done against a team that has Steph Curry and Steve Kerr and Draymond Green and Clay Thompson there. They're, I just don't think they have enough to do it. Um, so I, I, Gary Payne, that's that thinks that he's out. I think that we'll see the Warriors with Gary Payne in the finals uh, in a few weeks. Oh, there you go, folks. Um, to Jordan's point, in the regular season, uh, he he averaged the same amount of points uh, uh, Jod did, 27 and 28, home and road. Um, he shot 6% worse on uh, uh, from the floor. He shot nearly uh, 11% worse from three on the road. And in the playoffs... He's averaging 33 at home and 14 on the road. Yikes. And nearly 20 percentage points worse from the field. And 26 percentage points worse from three. Wow. You are not kidding, my friend. Um, Those are big, big disparity numbers. And yes, Chase Center is not Oracle, but that is a tough place to play either way. So, wow. Look at that. Absolutely, and you know, Steve, you know, Curry's going to make adjustments, make him uncomfortable. Um, you, I, you know, trust in Curry to make to make that happen. It's just a young team in general. When Ja is shut down, I don't, you know, I like, like I said, I like a lot of these guys, but I don't know if they have the firepower to keep up with the with the Warriors team. You know, and Ja, you know, has been incredible in these games so far, and they're barely winning. He's put up 34 and 47. He's shooting 40% from three in these two games on a very high volume, by the way. So he's taking the off the defense is letting him take a lot of threes, and he's hitting them right now. But I don't trust Ja to consistently hit a high volume of threes through a seven-game span, through a seven-game series. He's a, a career below average three-point shooter. So um, I think all of that is pointing in the direction for the, for the Warriors to take this series. And you give Steve Kerr three games uh, uh, sorry, three days off to prep. That next game is Saturday night. And you give that banged up team time to rest as well. Yes, that that too. Jordan Brickman with us here on teeing it up. Does my uh, does Philly stand any chance when Embiid comes back uh, tomorrow? I mean, they stand a chance to be competitive in those games. I would have taken the Heat to begin with with a healthy Embiid when they're already down 2-0. I think they have a. I don't have much of a chance to win the series on a game-to-game basis. They have a chance, but if all those games are 50-50, you know, odds are they're going to eventually wind up wind up losing. But it's very obvious that Harden is just not the same player right now. Um, Say it, Jordan. He, Say it. Say it. He, the, the guy is fat. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he's, here, here's my prediction for what happens with Harden, though. Harden is, I think, 32 or 33. He's getting older. He's going to start. He's going to start slowing down physically. And to this point, at least recently, he has very obviously not taken, taken care of his body. I predict in this offseason, he's going to come back next year and be significantly skinnier. Because I think he's going to now realize that his lack of taking uh, good care of his body has caught up to him. Now he's got to adjust the way he you know, takes care of himself and prepares for a season. So that's my – and he's also about to be a free agent. So that's another reason to be motivated. To get into really good shape and show yeah them. there's right. this thing where people tend to like work hard when they're free agents yeah it's this yeah <laughs> fascinating sports concept you get the money you slack off you need the money you work 
Um, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I think we'll see that in a couple of months when, when Harden's a little bit more slimmed down. Uh, but they're just not, it's just not a, similar to the, to the, to the Grizzlies. I just think that with Harden not being a, you know, the prime Harden, uh, that, that we know, and Embiid, you know, he's going to be probably great because he shouldn't be really impacted from his play with the facial injury, but it's really hard to win in this league when your best player is a center. Um, we've, we, we've seen that time and time again. I can't think of the last team to win with the center as their best player. Like, even Dirk was a big man. He played more of the four. Chandler was the five on that team. Um, you look at, look at how the, the Nuggets have struggled. Obviously this year they were at a talent disadvantage. The Nuggets have struggled in the postseason. Embiid has always struggled in the postseason. Your best player needs to be a wing in today's NBA. It's really hard to win with your center as your best player. That, that's why Harden has to be Harden for them to have a chance. And he just hasn't been. So, so I don't think they have a, a much of a chance to catch up to the, to the Heat in the series. I am with you on that. I am uh, totally with you on that. Does Dallas stand any chance against Phoenix? Cause I don't no, think they I do. Think- I, I think this could even be a sweep. Sure. And I, and I think that would look even more embarrassing for the Jazz um, if that happened. Yes. Um, yes. Um, you, know, you, you know the reason why they're losing, Jeremy, because they're not playing Frank Milakina. The guy has Welcome, not ladies and gentlemen, the president of the Frank Milakina uh, fan club, Jordan Brickman, to the floor, ladies and gentlemen. Check the box where he was, he was shot 100% from the field yesterday. In that game, and it was plus. It was plus. Uh, he had plus numbers and plus minus, despite them losing by twenty points or so in the game. Um, but they just don't. Have, but I, I obviously I say that jokingly. But they actually don't have the wing defenders to stop the Suns. Um, there's just not like Luke is obviously a low average defender, but Brunson is also a low average defender. Um, they just they don't have they don't have rim protection on that team. They they just don't have enough outside of Luca. To compete on a regular basis, Luca could go nuclear. They could win a game because Luca goes nuclear at home. The next game, game three, is probably the game that they have the best chance because that's the game where it's like this is the game where the series can be saved or we're going to go down three zero and that's going to be it. Um, but yeah, I don't think that the Suns are just like so well coached too. I still think Jason Kidd is a fairly average head coach, um, and the Suns are just so well prepared. They they know what to expect in these moments. Um, I, I think that there's too much for them to to lose to the Mavericks. Uh, Lucas scored 35 in game two and was a minus 28. Frank scored three points on one of one shooting and was a plus one. That's right. That's right. And in his first game, the other game, he had one assist and no turnovers in, uh, I think, uh, two minutes. That's an 18 assist per 36. No turnovers. Pretty good. He had one assist and one turnover in game two. Oh. Uh, well, I, I'm, uh, I, whatever. Let's, uh, let's move on. <laughs> yes, let's let's move on to what I think is a fascinating series, which is Boston and Milwaukee. Um, because you saw what this Celtics team did. They they showed that they may have enough. They may have enough pieces in that last series. Now they go up against the defending champs, and uh, I think this is going seven. I, I I and I think it's a flip of the coin. I I think Tatum has been that good, smart. If, if if he comes back in Game 3 and if he plays like himself, watch out. Watch out, folks. Because Jalen Brown picked up the slack without Marcus Smart last game. You put Marcus Smart back in there and he's healthy, watch out. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you that this can definitely go go 7. I, I mean, for Marcus Smart to sit, he must be pretty hurt. 
I feel like that's a guy that plays through injuries. And, yeah. You know, would would so I'm, I'm curious to see how he is health wise. Um, shame that Chris Milton is out, of course. Um, game one, Giannis was incredible in game one. He totally controlled that game on all fat. It was kind of LeBron like, where he was the playmaker on the team. He was the best defender on the team. He got all the rebounds, scoring all the points. He was so good in game one. We'll see. We'll see how the, how that evolves throughout the series if, if he can maintain that level of um, offensive production. I think he had 12 assists in game one. Um, you know, if he's doing that, the Bucks are going to win because they're going to need him to be their entire offense. Drew Holiday had a good game one. Um, I, I would like that's going to be the X factor for me because with, with Middleton out, it's a lot more pressure on Drew, and Drew's going to be getting dragged by Mark Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown and the different defenders that the that the Celtics have. Can he still put up offensive numbers there, and can the Bucks shooters shoot a high percentage? Similar to the to the Warriors series, the Bucks took a game in Boston. What does it look like? Some of these guys, they're superstars, have had time playoff experience, but how will they stand? I think that some of them can do this, but how will they show up in a, you know in a game six or game seven when they need to have a great game? There's no room for a bad game um, in those environments. We know how the Bucks will respond. We know Giannis will show up in that, in that spot. That's going to be the question they need to answer. You made Doka first-year coach. Um, but a Budenholzer can sometimes be a little stringent with uh, making changes, but he's a he's a he's a very qualified coach who you know who has shown the propensity recently to adjust as as needed. So it'll be a very interesting series. I agree. It's probably a toss-up. You know, I think particularly because Boston has home field, home court rather, that, that gives them, that gets it to 50 50 for me. I think, you know, otherwise Giannis almost by himself is, um, could, could take them down. And I think Giannis very clearly at this point, especially with what KD did against the Celtics, how, how poorly he played, I think Giannis is very obviously the best player in the NBA. Potentially by a notable, notable gap at the moment. I am with you on that as well, Jordan Brickman. Hey, what are you doing Saturday night? Got, uh, I got some fight plans. We're watching some fights Saturday night. Yeah, so UFC 274, folks, is coming your way on pay-per-view on ESPN Plus on Saturday. Jordan, his brother's been on the show, uh, uh, you know, uh, several times over the years to promote this stuff. And what Jordan's been doing with me. And we literally, I, I have not asked him this yet, um, uh, because I wanted you guys out there to hear what he does for me, which is, okay, UFC 274, who should I be interested in? Because what I am finding with UFC is while the brutality can sometimes be too much for me, the stories behind it are fascinating. So who should I watch for on Saturday? So there's three big fights Saturday. Two, two that are championship fights that have legitimate... Uh, obviously, the any championship fight that have legitimate stakes for the division, and one that's super entertaining with some big names in it. Um, I'll start. I'll start at the top. So the main event is uh, this guy Justin Gaethje uh, fighting Charles Oliveira. So this fight is essentially guaranteed to be entertaining. It is almost guaranteed to not go to a decision. Charles Oliveira is a guy uh, who's a uh, incredible uh, BJJ Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, practitioner. He has the most submissions in UFC history. I think he has the most finishes in UFC history as well. Um, he used to fight at 145, and he it just it was too much weight for him. He, he he had a history of quitting basically. Once the going got tough, he got going. He 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 was he was not trying to be in these fights that were like firefights where it took a lot of damage. He would essentially quit 
um, in those fights. Moves up to 155, his more natural weight class, kind of has a, a mindset adjustment. Goes and, and after that happens, he, I think he's won 12 uh, of 13 fights, including 11 straight, I believe, at 155 to go from kind of a middle-of-the-road fighter at 145 to the UFC champion. In that path, he has very recently has taken out somewhat of a murderer's row. He submitted Dustin Poirier, who's a big name, who fought Conor McGregor and, and beat Conor McGregor very recently, twice, um, and submitted him. And he also took out Michael Chandler, who's also fighting on this card, who we'll get to momentarily, um, in an amazing comeback where he was in both of those fights. He was knocked down, almost finished and knocked out, and he got back up, and he survived the round, and then, and then later on in the fight, or maybe even the next round, he came back and won the fight. So he's really changed the narrative about his career, and he's incredibly dangerous um, in, in these fights. And he's fighting Justin Gaethje, who is the most exciting fighter in the sport. He has, he has had, I think, nine or ten fights in the UFC, and I believe he has 11 of the night performances, which basically means at the end of every pay-per-view, at the end of every event, Dana White will say uh, these fighters get fight of the night, which is a bonus, or performance of the night, which is a bonus, which is basically for the most spectacular you know, fights and performances of the evening. He has gotten one or two in every single fight he's ever had except for one. Huh. He, he, he came into the UFC. I believe he was undefeated when he came to the, he was undefeated when he came to the UFC, and he said, I'm just going to keep walking forward. I'm going to knock you out. You're going to knock me out. That's his entire mindset. He is... He is a car crash. That's, that's how he describes it. He says, I'm, I'm trying to create car crashes. Another UFC fighter describes him, his mindset, as he would set himself on fire just to get you to be a little burned. That's how he, ooh, that's how he fights. Ooh, ooh, um, ooh. He, he, he's, he's chaos. Um, and he will do so much damage. He will do... Charles Oliveira will get hurt by Justin Gates this weekend, guaranteed. It's just about does he do enough damage to finish him and can, can Charles Oliveira... Um, Put, put, put his, his style on, on the Justin Gaethje. That is a guaranteed, incredible, competitive fight that will almost no, no way go to a decision. Gaethje's only fought the decision once in his entire career. It was his last fight, and he knocked the guy down and hurt him really badly in that fight. That was also Michael Chandler. So that was that fight. That's the main event. That's a guaranteed, incredible fight. The second title fight, which is a, a women's title fight, straw weight, uh, 115 pounds, is a rematch. UFC has a show called The Ultimate Fighter. If you're not familiar, uh, it's kind of like uh, the real world meets MMA. They, a bunch of fighters move into a house and they train together and they fight each other. And at the end of the champion, at the end of the competition, two people fight and the winner gets a UFC contract. These two women that are fighting on Saturday, Rose Namajunas and Carlos Barza, they were on the inaugural strawweight Ultimate Fighter season. So at the end of that Ultimate Fighter season, they actually fought for the inaugural strawweight belt. In that fight, Carlos Farza beat Rose Namajunas. Since then, Rose Namajunas has won the belt, lost the belt, now has won it back, and, is now, and has defended it once. She is now fighting Carlos Farza again, I forget how long, this is years and years later, in the rematch for the first ever title that Rose can now right the wrong uh, against Carlos Farza. Carlos Farza is getting married a week from Saturday. She, she, so she hopefully has either a good night and doesn't get any, any marks on her face or she has a great makeup artist on staff to, to hook her up. But, um, See, uh, uh, seriously. Yeah. Um, so that's a, that's a great fight. Rose, Rose Namunis with the win may go down as the, the greatest of all time at that weight class. She's beaten 
I believe every champion that's ever been at the weight class. She's four and zero in rematches. Uh, we'll see if she can if she can win another one this weekend. She's a very fan friendly fighter. She's got a very good personality, very likable. You may have seen her go viral uh, a couple months ago, standing in the octagon saying, "I'm the best. I'm the best. I'm the best to herself." Before a fight, um, she's so she's she's just a very inspirational and fun fighter to watch. That's definitely I'll be rooting for. And then lastly, uh, the other big fight is. Uh, two household names, Tony Ferguson and Michael Chandler. Tony Ferguson, uh, another one of the most exciting fighters in the sport. He is a maniac madman in there, throwing uh, spinning elbows and, and rolling over with him and Ari rolls and like, like basically going all over the octagon doing crazy stuff that you don't see anyone else do. Um, he's incredibly tough, but he's lost badly three straight fights. He, he has been completely dominated in three straight fights. Might be over the hill. And he's fighting a guy, Michael Chandler, um, who is very, a very exciting fighter, takes it to you, has a lot of power, um, and will also bring the action. So they're going to go, they're going to go head to head, um, as well. And not a ton of like narratives or storylines there, although Tony Ferguson, who again, kind of toward the end of his career or back half of his career, had an interview yesterday when they were, t- and he was talking about, uh, fighter pay, which is a big, big issue in, in the sport. And a lot of these guys don't make it as much money as a professional athlete should. And he called Dana White a drug dealer. Oh. He, he basically, basically said that, you know, Dana holds, Dana and the UFC in general holds these contracts over these fighters and, um, basically forces them to fight for not as much money and, you know, controls their lives and, and, um, you know, basically, but they have to keep, keep coming back because this is their career and this is how they make money. So they, so he, he likened Dana to that. He went on a very long and passionate rant about it and he, he seems to have, I don't want to say figure something out in his mind, but uh, he came in angry. And I don't think I would say that necessarily about Tony in his last few fights, with especially when he got dominated. So it'll be very interesting to see how he approaches the fight, former interim uh, lightweight champion. So it should be uh, should be a, another very exciting fight. So the last three fights of the, of the night are, are, are true to be uh, great ones. There's your UFC 2... Uh, what did I say? Yeah, uh, 274 preview uh, from Jordan Brickman and... Uh, Nothing like calling out the commissioner in, in a blunt terms. Wow, um, that is that's a bold move. But I guess if you back it up with your um, with with your performance, it might just pay off uh, in getting you what you are looking for. So to wrap up this podcast, we go back to baseball and the question: Jordan Brickman. 1898 Baltimore Orioles, you've probably seen this. They have the record for the most hit by pitch in a season by a team, um, which is 160. Um, will you uh, hold on a second? Most hit by a pitch team records, hits by a pitch. I keep forgetting if I'm looking at the right number for the most uh, for the team that has hit the most people or has gotten hit. The bottom line is your players keep getting hit. Will you break the major league record for most hit batsmen in a season? I'm going to say no, and I think that and there, I, the broadcast Gary Keith and Ron had an interesting theory about why the hit by pitches were going to slow down, and it's because they think that by Buck and the Met by the Mets making a big stink out of it by you know with the Cardinals. Avengers clearing, Prakas, and Buck making such a big thing of it. They think that pitchers may start to throw inside less hmm. to avoid these types of things happening, um, which would be 
a great thing to happen for the Mets because they, if that means they can only throw to half of the plate or you know three quarters of the plate, that that's great. They they can they can adjust to that. Um, so I I think that that is a potential element. I also think that the pitchers are going to get more used to the balls. Spring training being short in this year, in theory, they should be their command should improve as the season goes on. So in theory, the hit by pitches will will be less. So I think that it will start to slow down. But the Mets, for whatever reason, always seem to get hit by these pitches as much as anybody else. So can't point to can't point to why for the most part. But um, I think the number will start to go down as the season goes on. I mean, it kind of has to. They got hit by so many pitches. Um, that'll, that'll probably go down. Here's one guarantee. By the time you're on next, I will have that stat figured out for sure. There we go. Um, so we'll get that ironed out. Jordan Brickman, thank you so much, as always, for coming on Teeing It Up and, and uh, for the time and valuable knowledge for all the fans out there. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. You got it. And take care and thank you all for listening to this edition of Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling.